Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 18. John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the healing uh, at the pool of Bethesda. I want to remind you uh, in the bulletin there's a connection card where you as a guest can let us know you were here. Uh, we would love to know that you uh, were here and, and uh, if you're a first time guest, send you a, a little... Uh, gift to let you know how much we appreciate you being here. There's a, a place for you to fill out uh, prayer requests uh, as well uh, and, and, and to communicate with us as pastors. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 18 and I want to uh, kind of let you know, let you in on something here. You'll notice as we read this that in the ESV there is no verse 4. Um, that is not a printing mistake. That is what's called in we're probably going to cover this more at length in uh, chapter 8 because there's probably one of the biggest textual variances in Scripture is, is found in John chapter 8. Uh, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but what textual variance means is that uh, some versions were uh, used this pile of manuscripts uh, to translate, uh, while other translations use this pile of manuscripts, and there are some variances. And they're not uh, variances that affect any major doctrine, uh, but they're there, and you need to know that they're there. Um, and ESV, uh, NIV would not include uh, verse 4. You would look at King James, and you would find verse 4, and I'll kind of let you know uh, what it says there in a moment. But just so you can be aware and, and not be confused, and we'll talk more about that probably uh, in a few chapters from, from now says this in verse 4. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic uh, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And so the verse that uh, is not included here. Uh, speaks of an angel uh, that would come down from time to time and stir the water uh, so that if those people that were sick could get to the water first, uh, then they would be healed of their ailment. And he goes on in verse 5, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 
the man went away and told the disciples that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal uh, to God. Now I want us to uh, remember what John says in, in, towards the end of, of the, the book of John is his purpose for writing this book. This is what it says in John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so John is saying, hey, there's a lot of things that Jesus did that I'm not including. But what I am including, I'm writing so that you may believe and that you may have life. And we see that John is actually the most selective writer of the Gospels when it comes to the miracles of Jesus. He only includes in his Gospel seven miracles of Jesus. Jesus did many more miracles that or recorded in the other Gospels, but are not recorded in John. So we must remember that John, when he includes a miracle, he's including it for a reason. He's including it for a purpose. And I believe that this purpose, uh, the purpose of this miracle is to simply show that Christ is Lord over all. We see in this text that He is Lord over the helpless, and He is Lord over those who think that they don't need help. We're going to see that He is Lord over sickness and He is Lord over the law of God. We're going to see that Jesus is Lord over everything. That's, that's the main point today. First, we see that Jesus is Lord over the helpless with authority over our weaknesses. Jesus stepped into the heart of a suffering people. Notice what Jesus, where Jesus goes. Our Lord goes into the heart of suffering. In verse 3, In these lay a multitude of invalids, of blind, lame, and paralyzed. This is a, a depressing place. This is not where, if you were touring Jerusalem, this is not the first place you would want to go as a tourist. We don't go to New York City and say, I want to see the slums. Or I want to see, the, I want to go to the cancer ward of the hospital or the burn ward at the hospital where all the really bad sick people are. No, I want to stay out and I want to see what this city has to offer. I don't want to see suffering. But Jesus, our Lord, He goes into the midst of this suffering. Now, what would happen in this pool that they were gathered at was, uh, and, and even if you take out chapter 4, this verse, even without chapter 4, acknowledges that there's a supernatural thing going on because the guy says, hey, when the water's stirred, I can't get there, okay? So again, the textual variance doesn't really change much about this text. But when there is, when there is a stirring of this water, if, if you can get in there, you can get healed. And so that's why it attracted everyone. 
that needed help, that could not help themselves, that had probably been to people that maybe could try to treat them, and there was no treatment for what they had. And so they would come to this pool in the hopes that it would stir it. And it appears that, that maybe during uh, festivals such as what's happening now, that, that there would actually be uh, a more frequent stirring of the water. And so and they were gathered there. And Jesus desired to be in the midst of them. Some people don't like hospitals. I didn't like hospitals until I became a pastor and had to get over that. I didn't like, uh, I didn't like to go into nursing homes uh, until my grandparents were in a nursing home and I became a pastor and it got, I got over it. But oftentimes we want to avoid those places if at all possible because we don't want to be reminded that the world is broken. That there are people hurting. That there are people that are dying. Out of sight. We like to keep suffering out of sight so that it will be out of mind. But not Jesus. Jesus was where the hurting people were. Why? Because He had authority over their suffering. He was the one that at this time was in the process of overcoming this broken world full of suffering. He'll say later in John 16.33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. When you are the cure, as Jesus was the cure, you have no need to fear the disease. So Christ walks into this multitude of suffering and He singles out one man. A helpless man. A man that was even more helpless than the other people were there, that were there. He had been an invalid for 38 years. This is as long as many people were living in this day. A full life of, of being crippled. And it says here that Jesus knew that this man had been there a long time. I wonder if maybe he didn't live there. I mean, we know he has his bed with him, so we know that he spent long periods possibly living there, hoping that, you, that he could get in to that water and be healed. And Jesus goes to the man and he says, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir... I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Notice his helplessness. Not only is he incapable of getting to the water to be healed, he doesn't even have anyone in his life who loves him enough to get him to the water. Think about the paraplegic who was uh, healed uh, because his friends, right, his four friends, tore open a roof and lowered him down to get him to Jesus. This man had no friends like that. He was absolutely 100% alone and left in his misery to suffer. He couldn't do it. And he had no one to help him do it. But in an instant, everything changed. Because Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. 
Again, we see the great demonstration of the power of the words of Christ. Be healed. Take up your, your mat and walk. He hasn't done that for 38 years and suddenly he's up walking around. I mean, this man again thinks that, man, the power is in the water and, and he finds as, as the, the official last week learned, no, the power is in just the simple words of Christ when He declares something. It is so. What a fantastic picture of our salvation. What a fantastic picture of our condition as we are in our sin and we have no way to help ourselves to make ourselves whole. We have no ability on our own. And there's no friend or parent uh, even that can do it for us. We are alone. And then Christ comes and He speaks into our life and everything changes. In one moment, no hope. Nobody that cares. And in the next moment, everything changes as the Lord comes into our life. The power of His Word and changes us and makes us whole. You know, we're all helpless. We We don't all look as helpless as this guy. Because so much of our incapacities lay in our heart and in our sin the places that no one sees, but we are helpless until we find our wholeness in Christ. We see that Jesus follows up with a spiritual admonishment with this man. He finds him, uh, they kind of part ways, and then we're going to come back and talk about the Pharisees that this man has to deal with. But in verse 14, they're reunited. It It says, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, You are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. First, I want us to notice that Jesus just points out to the positive aspect of the fact, look at you. You're well. Some translations would say, you are whole. I mean, Jesus is acknowledging, hey, look at what's happened to you because of me. Just earlier, you were helpless and now you're walking around and you're hopeful. Jesus acknowledging the, the beauty of the situation and the change that had happened in this man. Jesus takes great, Jesus takes great joy in our lives. Jesus takes great joy in progress that He brings to our life. Y'all, so often we're worried about, man, I'm, I'm not as great as I should be. Or I could have been. And we always think that that's what God first goes to is, man, you could be so much better. But no, God is a God who loves to rejoice in the works that He's done in our lives. That He, the progress that He has brought to us, and He he takes joy in that. But, Jesus does move into an admonishment here. He tells him to sin no more. 
so that nothing worse will happen, happen to him. So, man, it brings up the question, is he an, is he an invalid because he did something wrong? I, mean, I, I read this as probably, I feel like he was probably this way from birth. We don't know. Maybe he did do something wrong and was cursed with this. We know later that Jesus will uh, confront a, a, a question about a blind man that he heals, that he says, hey, this man's been blind from birth, so who sinned? Was it him or his parents that sinned? And Jesus said, well, no, it's neither. It's so that God's glory can be demonstrated. And so I don't know that we have enough to go on to say that this man was, I mean, we know that all suffering, all the pain in our life is a result from sin in general, right? Because of a broken world. But I think what Jesus wants to get to the heart of here is, look, man, being crippled for 38 years is misery. And it's awful. And you've had a rough life. But know this, it can be worse. It can be worse than physical ailments. And that is spiritual ailments. If your soul is lost, if you don't take care of your soul, if you don't care of your, you know, of your faith, then you will, you will die and experience a much worse hell than 38 years of being paralyzed. Or being crippled. And so Jesus works in this man's life. And we see that because of this, a controversy is initiated. Jesus commanded that he not only get up and walk, but that he also pick up his mat. Jesus was very specific about that. I want you to get up. I want you to pick up that mat right there. And I want you to walk. Why? Well, because of the lack of a better phrase, I'm convinced that Jesus was wanting to pick a fight. The carrying of the mat, it wasn't necessary as part of this guy's healing, was it? He could have just walked away and left the mat. But Jesus said, pick up your mat. And Jesus is going to be dealing with the ramifications of this healing for the next three chapters. It's going to keep coming up. The fact that he healed this guy and this guy carried this mat on the Sabbath. It's going to become a huge deal. So you can't tell me that, that Jesus just accidentally, oh, uh-oh, I made everybody mad from getting this guy to take up his mat. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And he was far, this was far past the wedding feast, the miracle he worked that he didn't want anybody to really know about. I think we're getting to the point now, he's ready to throw it all out there. He's ready to begin to declare to people who he really is. And through taking on what I'm going to call the legalist, we will see that the Lord is the Lord over laws, especially man-made laws. Jesus is Lord over the legalists with authority over the Sabbath. It says this in verse 10, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. So Jesus now moves to take on someone different. He's been working with this helpless guy 
And now he's about to take on people that are absolutely, or in their mind, independent. We've got this thing figured out. We got this law thing figured out. We got it figured out so much that we're not just trying to keep the law anymore. We're the police, and we're going to go around, and we're going to look for people breaking the law, and we're going to let them know. A legalist is someone who seeks justification before God through performance in law-keeping. That's a legalist. Not only do they seek justification through the law, they try to help others and find it their duty to help others to seek justification through the law. They don't want to just be holy. They want you to be holy. And they're going to let you know how to do it. And does this instance not expose the heart of a legalist? I mean, this man has been crippled for 38 years. And their response is not, George, you're walking. Like, that seems like that would be a good response if you knew this guy. Dude, you're walking. I mean, Jesus even responds that way for him. He did the miracle, right? The first thing Jesus does is he goes to the joy. Hey, man, you are well. But no, the heart of the legalist goes to what you are doing wrong. There is no joy in this man's healing. There is only a reprimand for breaking the law. And there's two things I think we need to understand about this law that the Pharisees were was uh, promoting and trying to help people with. The first is that the rules of the Sabbath had been so twisted that they were not fulfilling the purpose for which God had established them. Now, yes, God ordained the Sabbath and God gave rules according to the Sabbath. But we need to understand that the Pharisees had taken God's law and expanded it and twisted it until it was almost unrecognizable, certainly from its original intent. There's a, Jesus, time and time again throughout His ministry, was encountering this problem of breaking the Sabbath. In Mark 2.27, Jesus uh, is reprimanded about doing things on the Sabbath. And he says this, he says, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath for His people. For His people to be able to rest from their normal activities, their normal schedule, and to focus their mind on Him and rest, and rest in Him. To make he was, he was, it was given to make man's life better by making sure that man would always come back to rest in God and leave the hustle and bustle of their normal lives. But as man does, they took the law that is for their benefit and so twisted it that it actually becomes the opposite of what it was intended for. Here's how weird it got, Okay? You could, if you spit on the Sabbath and you hit a rock, you're good. 
you are keeping the Sabbath. If you spit and it landed on dirt, you moved dirt, you're far, you were farming, you broke the Sabbath. Okay, that's crazy. Can you imagine God when, when He intended this to be a, a, a day of rest and they so twisted it that everyone walks around paranoid about where their spit's landing? What God meant for rest and refocus for His people, man had twisted into a burden that had made everyone a nervous wreck. And notice how they, they seem totally blind to the goodness of God here, and they only care about the law, and man-made laws at that. This is the great problem with the legalists, that it divorces the goodness of God from His commands. We lose sight that God's laws are for our good. But that's what happens when you seek to be justified by your own works. You become preoccupied, preoccupied with getting it perfect. Because there's always that knowledge that, man, I, I'm a sinner and I can't live up to it, but you keep trying and you keep trying. Trying to get it perfect. And you demand perfection for yourself and you demand perfection from those around you. You don't see yourself as a re recipient of grace. You're a worker. And therefore, everyone around you needs to be a worker as well. I think we see this spirit in the older brother in the, the, prodigal, the, the parable of the prodigal son, right? The, the young son goes out, he, he gets his inheritance early, goes out, spends it all, comes back home. The father welcomes him. The father is, is so joyful that his son is back. But all the brother can think about is the law. All he can think about is, I kept your law. I stayed here. I worked for you. And you, this other son, he didn't keep your law. And he's not happy that his son, his, his brother got back alive. He's not happy that his father has joy. All he cares about is that the law was broken. And that's what legalism does. But it's more than just the fact that Jesus had a better understanding of what the Sabbath was, was truly meant to be. It's also that He was the Lord of the Sabbath. Look at how he responds when they question him about the law. He says, it says in verse 17, But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Basically, he says, The Father and me, we don't rest. The Sabbath is for you to rest. And rest in us. But we don't rest. My Father doesn't rest, and I don't rest. I continue to work for you. I continue to, do, to, to serve you, to do good for you, even on the Sabbath. Back in Mark 2.27 that we, we, we just read, it goes on after, uh, I'll read what we already read and then add to it verse 28. It says, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
That is essentially saying the, the same thing, is that, hey, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, okay? If I want to heal somebody and I want to do good, I'm going to do good. And I'm not breaking God's law by doing it because God works and I'm working. When he is reprimanded in Luke 14 for healing on the Sabbath, he says this. He said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that is falling into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. His point is, hey, look, if your son falls in the ditch on a Sabbath, or your favorite animal falls in the ditch on a Sabbath. Are you just going to leave him there to die? Or are you going to do some work to get him out? It says they couldn't reply. You know why? Because they're thinking, I'd have to break the Sabbath. And so what Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm rescuing people. I'm doing good works. And the Sabbath was never meant for you not to do good works. It was meant for you to rest in God. And what he's saying here, folks, what, what is the most important thing that he's saying here is that he is equal with God. Now, people try to say, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God. And, and, but this crowd certainly understands what he's saying. It says in verse 18, this is why the Jews were spared were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even, even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. That's ultimately what this miracle is about. It's for Jesus to say, I am the Son of God. I'm equal with God. I'm the hope. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one y'all have been waiting for. And this is what it all comes down to. You cannot pick and choose what you like about Jesus. You can't say, oh, he, he, he was a nice guy that taught us to love one another. I like that part of Jesus. Or, hey, he was a, a, a guy that had magic and he could heal people. I like that part of Jesus. No, you accept him as the Lord of everything or you don't accept him you don't get to parse jesus you don't get to cut up and divide him and that's what jesus is, is letting the people know look i'm god and you can either try to kill me or you can in, in humility bow your knee to me but i'm making statements here I'm making clear statements here, and you can't be neutral about me. John wants you to know this morning, I want you to know this morning, that Jesus is the Lord of all. From the abandoned, if you're here and, and you're helpless, you feel helpless, and you know your spiritual condition is lame, and, and crippled. He is the Lord of your life. And He is the Lord that can save you and make you whole. 
And if you're here, and you're the legalist, you're the one that's trying to be good enough, trying to keep God's law well enough where he'll, he'll finally be pleased with you and let you in heaven. That is not how it works. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And you have to humble yourself. You have to become like the helpless beggar who had no other hope. You have to humble yourself before Christ and acknowledge that yes, He absolutely is equal with God. The one thing you cannot do is remain neutral. His claim, his claims are too strong. He's the Lord of, of everything. And he'll settle for no less than that. I'm going to ask our musicians to come. and I'm going to ask you to please stand. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. Um, God sent His Son, Christ, to walk this earth, to do miracles, to establish His authority, to live a perfect, sinless life, and then to ultimately die in the place of, of filthy, wretched sinners so that our sins could be forgiven and we could receive His righteousness. And there's no other way to be saved. We are the cripple beside the pool with no other avenue of healing and, 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 and wholeness than Christ and His words. You respond to Christ however He's calling you to respond through His Word this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, God, whether we are here as the helpless or the independent that think we have it figured out, God, help us to just humble ourselves in the truth of this Scripture that You are Lord of everything. God, I thank You that You are that Lord. God, help us to trust in You and, and to believe in You and to to just trust in grace and not our efforts. God, help us to be people that are overjoyed in, in your grace and what you're doing in our lives and in the lives of others. God, move in our hearts this morning to respond to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.